this morning. How many of you can say that you are washed in the blood of the Lamb? Amen. Amen. I forgot to mention earlier as I was making announcements, we have a new memory verse. Uh, it is there in your bulletins, Proverbs 16.32. Proverbs 16.32. I had a, a basketball coach when I was playing basketball here uh, a number of years ago who pounded this verse into our minds as basketball players because basketball is supposed to be a non-contact sport. And for anyone that's played basketball, you know that is the farthest thing from the truth. And it can easily cause your blood to boil. You can get frustrated on the basketball court. Things don't always go your way. And of course, Brother Dave McCoyne is here. He refed many of those games and incorrectly made a number of calls against me, of course, because I, I never made any mistakes on the basketball court. <laughs> Yes, every time the whistle blew in my direction, my hands would go up like this as if to say, you know, what are you saying? What are you thinking? Um, but this memory verse, our, our coach would just pound this into our minds because he wanted us to well, maintain a positive testimony while we were on court for sure and also to keep our anger under control because anger is something that gets the best of us. And Charles Spurgeon once said, he said, I heard of someone that lost his temper and I pray that he never finds it again. And... Certainly, there's, there's a lot to be said about that. But Proverbs 16.32 is the memory verse for the month of September. I encourage you to commit that verse to memory and apply it to your life. This morning, as we turn our attention to God's word, we're going to be looking at the last three verses in the book of, or in the 2 Kings chapter 4. Last three verses of 2 Kings chapter 4. So, verses 42 43 and 44, 2 Kings chapter 4, in a sermon that I've titled, Freely Received, Freely Give. 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. Now this morning we come to the ninth miracle in the ministry of the prophet Elisha. The ninth miracle. And believe it or not, many scholars don't even recognize this as a miracle. They kind of just skip right over it or dismiss it as if it wasn't a miracle and just more of words that were spoken that happened to come true. And our passage this morning, again, has only three verses. And if you're not careful, you can quickly read through and read over them without knowing and considering what happened. So let's go ahead and look at our passage this morning and conclude for ourselves what indeed happened in these three verses. Notice what the Bible says here in 2 Kings chapter 4, verses 42 to 44. And there came a man from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and full ears of corn in the husk thereof. And he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. And his servitor said, What? Should I set this before a hundred men? He said again, Give the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, They shall eat and shall leave thereof. So he set it before them, and they did eat and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. So the Bible tells us here in these three verses that a man shows up carrying 20 barley loaves and some corn to give to the prophet, and Elisha instructs his servant to give to the people, most likely the sons of the prophet, but either way, some people that are there that they may eat. 
And the servant who's instructed to give the food to the people responds negatively, suggesting that there are at least a hundred people that need to eat, and there is nowhere near enough food to feed this large group. And then Elisha doubles down and tells him to give them the food, insisting that everyone will be able to eat and that there will be even leftovers remaining. And sure enough, all men ate the food and there were leftovers just as the man of God predicted. So I ask you this morning, was it a miracle? Was it? Can you think of another instance, maybe in the New Testament, where something similar to what happened here happened? Feeding the 5,000. Later on, Jesus would feed another 4,000. But very similar instances that we read about here. And as far as I know, that was recorded as a miracle when he fed the 5,000 and later on the 4,000. And somehow here, when 100 people are fed with a small amount of food, it's just skipped over and not declared to be a miracle. The way the servant objected leads us to believe that the food that was presented to the prophet Elisha was not enough to feed so many people. And some believe, based on the fact that one man carried the food, because we only have record of one man showing up, that it was really only enough for one person to eat. Either way, the servant seemed convinced that not everyone would be able to eat. So then, what happened? Well, some scholars have tried to break this passage down to the point of just dismissing it completely as being a miracle. But a careful reading of these verses makes it, I think, very clear and almost impossible to dismiss the wonder-working power of God. How else can a hundred people be fed with such a small amount of food and there be leftovers? What I love about this passage is that, as I mentioned, it closely resembles some of the miracles of Christ that are recorded in the Gospels. One specific one is recorded in all four Gospels, and you all mentioned that the feeding of the 5,000. One commentator tries to dismiss this miracle here in 2 Kings chapter 4 um, by stating that Elisha did not produce the miraculous increase of food. He just predicted it. So it's not a miracle because he didn't actually bless the food, break it up, dis distribute it to all the people, and thereby it doesn't count as a miracle because all he did was predict that everyone would eat and that there would be leftovers. Maybe there's a technicality there, but if any of you have been paying attention to the life and ministry of Elisha, you'd realize that this is actually quite similar to what he's done in the past. And as we've worked our way through the life and ministry of Elisha, you can remember that just even though Elisha didn't multiply the food, just like uh, God did, just like God did with every other miracle that the prophet Elisha did. Elisha, if you can remember, told the widow who had come to him and said, the debtor has come, the creditor has come, and he's going to take my two sons unless something happens, and I don't have enough oil to do anything. And so he says, go and gather as many pots as you can and start filling them with oil. And what happens? She does exactly as he says, and she keeps filling and filling and filling and filling until all the pots she has gathered are full. Did Elisha do anything and pray over the oil? Did he do anything to touch those pots? No. He told her what to do. She did it, and God brought about the increase. Later on, we're told that Elisha is met by three kings. Three kings who are coming and they're going to do battle. And they say, we're out in the wilderness. We're all going to die because there's no water out in the wilderness. And so Elisha says, says a few things to Jehoram because he doesn't like the guy. But he tells them at the end of the day, go and dig ditches. Get yourselves ready for water because there's water that is going to come from sources you never even knew existed. And they go and they dig ditches and wouldn't you know, God brings water. 
Again, Elisha didn't go and pray over the men that were going to dig ditches. He didn't pray over the ditches once they were dug and bring the water this way. He told them, do this and the water will come. Elisha told the Shunammite woman earlier in chapter 4 of 2 Kings that she would give birth to a son a year from the time that he spoke those words. And you know what? A year later, she gave birth to a son. So how is this miracle here at the end of chapter 4 any different than what Elisha has already done? Of course, Elisha is not the power and the source of any of the miracles that have been done up to this point. God is. He's the source of it all. But God is using a human instrument to accomplish his will. And that human instrument, in this case, happens to be the prophet Elisha. A hundred people were fed by such a small amount of food, and, and everyone, after they ate, they still had leftovers. So as we take a closer look at this miracle and take absolute certainty that it is a miracle, Notice first the occasion of the miracle. The occasion of the miracle. And for this, I'm actually going to have you go back to verse number 38 of chapter 4. 2 Kings chapter 4 and verse number 38 as we identify the occasion of the miracle. Verse 38, which was what we looked at last week. It says, And Elisha came again to Gilgal, and there was a dearth in the land, and the sons of the prophets were sitting before him. And he said unto his servants, Set on the great pot and seethe pottage for the sons of the prophets. So Elisha is still in Gilgal. Here in verse number 42 down to verse 44, and there is still a famine in the land. The Bible says there is dearth in the land there in verse number 38. Evidently, the famine is not spread throughout the entire world, though. For the man in our passage who shows up in verse number 42 was able to grow some barley in Baal Shalisha and bring it to Elisha. God often uses famines to punish those who are disobedient to him. But what we see here in this passage is how in the midst of judgment, God is still showing mercy. God is still showing mercy in a time of judgment. Even when an entire country is suffering from famine and all the crops there in that land seem to be failing, there is food available in surrounding lands. We see a great picture of God's goodness and faithfulness as he continues to take care of his own, even when situations and resources can be incredibly dire. When the flood ended, all the way back in the book of Genesis, and the waters receded, Noah and his family went forth from the ark, the Bible says, and God made a promise to Noah in Genesis chapter 8 and verse number 22, and he said this. He said, while the earth remaineth, seed time and harvest... And cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. Shall not cease. Even though it's been around 4,000 years since God first spoke those words to Noah to where they are here. Every new season, or where we are today, every new season, every harvest, every day serves as a demonstration both of God's faithfulness as well as God's word, as well as God's continuous regulation of the affairs of this earth. Even in the midst of famine there in 2 Kings chapter 4, God was still true to his word as surrounding nations were still able to have a harvest and get what they needed to live. Even in a time of judgment, God was still showing mercy. So this is the occasion of the miracle. But I want you to notice, second, the contributor to the miracle. The contributor to the miracle. Look again at verse number 42. We're going to spend some time here in verse number 42 as we look at the contributor of the miracle. It says, And there came a man from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and full ears of corn in the husk thereof. And he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. Throughout Scripture, 
we get introduced to some key people whose names are never mentioned, and this is one of them. We never received the name of the Shunammite woman who had great faith in the previous um, section of chapter 4. We never get the name of this man who shows up to give this gift of food to the man of God. And I, for one, am truly thankful. My wife can tell you just how bad I am at remembering names. So this is just doing me a favor. I don't have to remember the guy's name because his name isn't even written in Scripture. Thank you, Lord, for thinking about me in this. But there, I'll be honest, there are times where I'm just so horrible at remembering names. And I'll even, I'm even to the point where I'm introduced to someone that's new and I'll repeat the name to them so I can remember it and just have that memory. And then two seconds later, I'll look at my wife and say, what was their name again? And she'll, fortunately, God has given, given me a wonderful wife who can remember people's names two minutes after we've met them. But let's take a quick look at this unnamed individual who only appears in one verse in the Bible. This man is only mentioned once, but even in this one occurrence, there is so much we can ascertain about his conduct and his personality. It's not a far stretch to suggest that this man had a heart for the Lord based on the fact that in the time of a famine, he was seeking to be a blessing to one of the Lord's servants. Now, we'll get into this man's hometown in just a minute, but evidently, the famine had not hit where he was living and where he was from, but he was keen enough to know that there were other people around him who were suffering. And in a time of distress, he does what he can to help the man of God. Most of the time, when food and resources are scarce, even if it doesn't necessarily reach everyone, people go into what we refer to as self-preservation mode. We hear about something affecting someone else, and so we think, "Uh, you know what, I'm just going to make sure that I'm taken care of over here. Now, in case you think I'm crazy, think back a couple years ago. Back in 2020, when COVID first hit, at least hit here, we were receiving news reports about toilet paper and paper towel shortages in other countries. And we sat back and we thought, eh, it's not going to happen here, right? We all ran to the grocery stores, ran to Walmart, ran to Camar, ran to everywhere that sold toilet paper and paper towels so that we could stockpile them in our own homes. And we heard reports of people actually fighting in the stores over toilet paper and paper towels because of reports from other countries that were having shortages. When crisis hits surrounding areas, people typically panic and expect it to hit them soon. And here we have an unnamed individual not panicking, doing the exact opposite, going through the trouble to minister to the prophet of God. And based on where we're told that this man is from, he probably traveled a decent amount of distance to reach the prophet and deliver this food. But there's even more with this man than what we initially see. We read in Psalm 37 and verse number 23, probably familiar verse, especially once I start reading it, you're probably going to think, I knew that verse. Psalm 37, 23 says, The steps of a good man are ordered by the Lord, and he delighteth in his way. We don't know how this man heard of the prophet Elisha. We don't know how he knew where to find the prophet Elisha. We don't know how much, really much of anything about this man, but we do know is that God used this man to be a blessing. And not just to be a blessing, but to partake in a miracle as well. We're told in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 13, 
Philippians 2, verse 13, it says, For it is God which worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. God was working in this man to meet the needs of those in Gilgal. And this man gladly responded to God's leading. God wasn't struggling to figure out how he's going to take care of his own uh, when this man showed up with food. God was working in the life of this man all the way up to this point, leading him to do this, leading him to travel, leading him to bring food to the prophet and gave him the opportunity to be a blessing to those that needed him. All of us here have probably been on both sides of this at some point where we have either been used by God to help someone else in need, or God has used someone else to help us in a time of need. And let me just give you a small piece of advice. When someone comes to minister to you in some way, regardless of, of where you may be, don't rob them of the opportunity to be a blessing to you. If they're genuinely seeking to help you, it is okay to let them help you. Some of us respond to help treating it like we're being attacked in some way. As if the person trying to help us is insisting that maybe we can't do something on our own. So that's why they're coming to help us. Don't read into it. Some people just want to help just to help. They're getting nothing out of it. They just want to be a blessing. If someone is going out of their way to do something nice, considerate, generous, helpful, or kind to you, it's okay to let them do that. They're not trying to attack your pride. They're not insisting that you're incapable of doing something. They just see an opportunity to be a blessing to another person, and that's all. There is no other motivation. Honestly, if you can see that God has brought people into your life at certain points to be a blessing, it might actually lead you to accept their help more often. If you can think about that, maybe this person is asking to help me because God has put it on their heart to be aware and in tune of the people around them that need help and has led them to this point where they're actually offering to help me, maybe we'd be more accepting of help. Not everyone is seeking self-glorification. Now, I would admit that there are some people that are doing that. But not everyone is seeking self-glorification. God is using plenty of people around you to be a blessing to you in a variety of different ways. But in many instances, we're too prideful to accept that help. And sometimes it's not pride. But we don't want to feel like we're taking advantage of someone. And so we know, I don't want to, you know, I don't want to take your help. But remember, if they're approaching us and they're offering to help us, God has probably led them to the point to make that offer and to also extend it. It's almost ridiculous how we treat the help that God gives us. We'll pray for God to meet our needs from day to day, and then when God sends someone to help us meet those needs, we'll turn them away for a variety of different reasons. We're too prideful to accept that. Oh, I can't accept that help. We don't want to, I don't want to take advantage of you and, and take advantage of what you're going to offer. We feel like we can handle some things on our own. And then after turning away from help, we'll turn back to God and ask him, God, can you please help me meet my needs? And he's like, I'm sending you one person after next, and you just keep turning away the help. Get it into your head that some people are genuinely wanting to help and genuinely there to provide for the things that you need. 
We can get so self-absorbed thinking that we're actually being incredibly humble by not accepting extra help. We ask God to help us, but we don't like the means. We don't like the instruments he uses to deliver what we need. And as a result, we fail to see God's hand of deliverance and provision and think that our prayers have gone unanswered. Everything we have is a gift from God, both the eternal as well as the temporal. God will often use human instruments to deliver some of those gifts. So don't reject his gifts because he's delivering help to you in a way that you weren't expecting. You have no idea how much God has worked on a specific individual to do what needs to be done in order for him to come and be a blessing to you. In the case of this man who helped Elisha, he traveled a considerable distance. He brought food at a time when food was scarce. He made sacrifices. He took risks. But he understood that God was using him in this way to minister to those who really needed his help at a very dire time for them. He responded to God's leading to be a blessing. And Elisha gladly receives his gift, understanding that God has ordained the steps of this man and that God would use this food to feed those hundred men. Now, with regards to where this man was from, the Bible says there in verse 42, it says, There came a man from Baal, Shalisha. This was originally called Shalisha, without the Baal attached to it. And it is referenced back in 1 Samuel chapter 9 as Shalisha, but under the wicked influence of a woman named Jezebel, the name of her false god Baal had been stamped upon this name to appear before it, as we see with several of the names throughout that time and that place. And it was given this new name as Baal Shalisha. And this makes the story just that much better. Because even in that place of idolatry, which if you know anything about Baal worship, it was steeped in idol worship. They would sacrifice live people to the false god Baal. And this was done in just numbers, and you would, you would never even imagine as to how many human sacrifices they would make at a time. But in a time and in a place that was steeped in idol worship, there was at least one man still there, that feared the Lord. There was at least one man still there who was going to worship God. God had a remnant. Throughout history, when situations appear hopeless and even lost, God always had a remnant. Now let this be a comfort to you that in times of widespread evil and wickedness, there are still some who fear the Lord. This world is going to continue to get darker and darker, but God will still have his remnant. For that reason, I love that we never get this man's name. I love that the only name we get is that here's the place where he's from, a place that was steeped in idol worship. And guess what? God brought good out of that situation. God was showing us there was one faithful, at least one faithful, in Baal Shalisha. And quite honestly, if it were up to this man, he probably would have been pleased to know that his name was never actually recorded in the pages of Scripture. Even though he is mentioned, it was never about him, and I think he knew that. He didn't bring food to Elisha for the purpose of getting anything out of it. He didn't say, okay, here's my delivery. Um, can you please write down a receipt saying that you've received this, and then give me a copy so that I can go back home and declare it on my taxes and make sure that I can get this taken off as some sort of charitable giving. Can you put in an extra word up to God to let him know that this man from Baal Shalisha, who you don't even have to know my name, but if you do, here's how you spell it. Let it be known to God that I've done something good for his people. Nothing of the sort. Here's the food. See you later. That's it. He appears and he's gone in one verse. 
He falls off the pages of Scripture never to be seen or heard of again. He wasn't seeking a blessing in return. He wasn't seeking some recognition from the man of God. He wasn't trying to make a name for himself. He doesn't tell Elisha how far he has traveled to get to where he is, what challenges he faced on the journey, how long it took him to gather the food, or how much all the food was worth, especially at a time when food was scarce. All that scripture records about this man is that he brings food to Elisha and then he leaves. Elisha is the one who does the speaking at the end of verse number 42. And he's not even speaking to the man. It says in verse 42 that he's actually speaking to the servitor. It says, and he said, give unto the people that they may eat. And the servitor says in verse 43, so it's a conversation between Elisha and most likely Gehazi, who's his servant at this time. Not Elisha and the man who brought the food. The man's gone. There's no record of conversation between Elisha and this unnamed delivery man. All we see is him bring the food and then he disappears from the pages of Scripture. And this right here is a true servant of God. A man who recognizes that God has called him to be a blessing to someone, but seeks no recognition, no praise for himself. For everything that God has called him to do, he seeks only God be glorified. There was no self-motivation in the actions and motivation of this man, only to do that which was pleasing to God. Now there's something else in here, which if we're not careful, we can easily miss. Now I want you to notice again what we see here in verse number 42. It says, There came a man from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley and full ears of corn in the husk thereof. And he said, Give unto the people that they may eat. Did you happen to see what the man brought. Did you catch what he brought? We're told it says he brought, it says he brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. Bread of the first fruits. And what's so significant about that? Why does scripture have to tell us that the bread was of the first fruits? Well, this is where we see how serious this man was as a servant of God. Back in Exodus chapter 23 and verse number 19. Exodus 23, 19. God instructs Moses. He says this. The first of the first fruits of thy land thou shalt bring into the house of the Lord thy God. In other words, the first fruits belonged to whom? To God. The first fruits belonged to God, and giving them to God was their way of acknowledging God's goodness in being the one who has supplied it to them, but also God's ownership. God, you not only gave us the resources, the ability to do the farming and to gather the food and collect it, but you own it all. So we're just giving back to you what's rightfully yours. So them giving to God of the first fruits was them recognizing that God has provided it, but that God also has ownership and the rights for it. God gives a more comprehensive explanation on the first fruits later on in Deuteronomy chapter 26. And I'm not going to read the entire passage, but in the first 11 or so verses, you read about how God instructs Moses on what will happen when the children of Israel enter into the promised land and what they should do with the land when the land uh, brings forth harvest. And listen to what we see just in the first four verses of Deuteronomy chapter 26. In Deuteronomy 26, verses 1 and 4, the Bible says, And it shall be, when thou art come in unto the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee for an inheritance, and possessest it, and dwellest therein, that thou shalt take of the first of all the fruit of the earth, which thou shalt bring of the land that the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt put it in a basket, and shall go unto the place which the Lord thy God shall choose to place his name there. 
And thou shalt go unto the priest that shall be in those days, and say unto him, I profess this day unto the Lord thy God, that I am come unto the country which the Lord sware unto our fathers for to give us. And the priest shall take the basket out of thine hand, and set it down before the altar of the Lord thy God. The first fruits were always given to God. Later in, in Numbers chapter 18, we find that this would become the portion of the priest. So why is this so important? Why is it so important that the Bible has to go out of its way to say that the man brought the man of God bread of the first fruits? Well, we read about this man from Baal Shalisha bringing bread of the first fruits, which is a sign of him acting in obedience to the law of God. Technically, technically, this man was supposed to bring this offering to the house of the Lord. That's what the law said. But there was a problem. There was a problem where this man lived. There were only priests of Baal. Remember the name Baal, Shalisha. Not just Shalisha, it's been consumed. The state religion of the day is the worship of Baal. So even though this man was not obedient to the letter of the law, which at the time he couldn't do anything about anyways, because the state religion was the worship of Baal, and those who worshiped God were being persecuted and killed, he was obedient to the spirit of the law. He recognized that these first fruits were not his. God had provided it to him. They're always God's to begin with. And though Elisha was not a priest, he was a prophet and a servant of the Lord. So this man is thinking, I need to give them to God some way. God, show me how I can do that. And God directs him to bring the food to the man of God in Gilgal. And this is why we're told that this man brought this food not to Elisha, but notice again the wording there in verse 42. It says, There came a man from Baal Shalisha and brought the man of God bread of the first fruits. At a time when Baal worship was the state religion. And the worship of God was not just unpopular, but it was forbidden. Where prophets of God are being killed and persecuted and chased out of the country. This man found the man of God to bring his offering to. What a tremendous testimony. What a tremendous testimony. We have no idea what this man went through to deliver this food, but his faithfulness to God was not going to allow him to be stopped, regardless of where the man of God was and regardless of what the culture and the society of the day stipulated. And I'll be honest, this man puts us all to shame. He puts every one of us to shame. We live in a day and age here in America where we can freely attend church, we can freely fellowship with other believers without the threat of persecution, and yet so many are looking for an excuse not to be in church, not to fellowship, not to be a blessing to fellow believers, not to serve Christ. We hold such a low view of God and a low view of God's word that obedience to God is something that we actually have to work hard to do. Think about it. If we held the proper view of God and the proper view of his word, obedience to him wouldn't be a struggle. 
We'd wake up naturally doing it, naturally inclined to serve him and to obey what his word has set forth because we hold a proper view of God, but because we have to be reminded of it time and time and time and time again, that tells us where our view of God really is, and it's more like down the dumpster than it is where it needs to be. We're pretty fortunate living here in America today. But the day may soon come where our present circumstances look much like what this man faced in his own hometown. It is every believer's responsibility to live in obedience to God's word. And when that cannot be done by the letter of the law, like it probably was for this man living in Baal Shalisha, it should be done in the spirit of the law as we see with him. This man didn't have to work hard to obey God's word because it had become part of who he was. So the idea of even traveling a great distance just to bring an offering to the man of God was just a no-brainer. Oh, time to bring an offering. Let me find the man of God and let's go do it. It doesn't matter. He wasn't mapping it out and thinking, oh, you know, 40 miles, that's kind of, that's kind of pushing it, right? I, there's got to be someone closer. You know, maybe his morals are a little more questionable, but I'm sure God won't mind. There's got to be someone closer that I can come to. He finds the man of God in a time when the prophets were being persecuted, at a time when worshiping God was not popular, and he finds the place that he can go and to be a blessing. And I think this is something that we failed. His obedience to God was never questioned. His obedience to God was never viewed upon as being work because it was who he is. And it's hard enough for us to be in church consistently, much less even be on time. Forget about it if we even ask for a work day. They want me to sacrifice part of my Saturday to come and do some manual labor? A lot of times we think of our tithe as what we throw into the offering plate when it comes by. We've given back to God, so we can check that off as what we've done for the week. Giving to God, though, is more than just giving God your money. It's giving God of your time. It's giving God of your effort. It's giving God of your service. It's giving God of your devotion. And on top of that, God wants us giving back to him with a cheerful heart, not out of a mindset of obligation. Well, I need to do this, so let me go ahead and do this. And I'm going to hang my head and drag my feet the entire time. But hey, at least I've done this. That's not what he's looking for. The man in our passage here, whose name we never get, didn't bring this offering to Elisha because he felt obligated to do so. He doesn't knock on his door and then just dump it and walk away. He cheerfully brings this food. He was doing this out of a spirit of desiring to worship God. We don't know the specifics of this man from 2 Kings 4.42, but if he did all this in this verse it's pretty easy for us to conclude that he was actively and actively worshiping and serving God back home in Baal Shalisha. And what's amazing is that God would use this man's faithful devotion in such a miraculous way. And the man never knew about it. It's not as if God said, listen, there's a hundred people that need to eat. Take the small amount of food and go bring to them and I'm going to multiply it so that every one of them can eat and that there will be leftovers once they're done. He doesn't tell them any of that. The man had no clue what God was going to do with this offering. God hadn't told him to bring this food so that a hundred people might eat. God used this man to be a blessing to these hundred people without the man knowing what was going to be done with it. Isn't that the way that God works? 
You never realize how your simple act of generosity and kindness may impact people. Sometimes the most insignificant and inconspicuous act done for God's glory can have the farthest reaching effect. You may not see it. Just like this man never saw it. He drops it off and he's gone. But God can take the small act, the small thing that you've done to be a blessing and can cause it to be a blessing to not just the one that you met with, but many more beyond that person. So we've seen the contributor to the miracle. Notice third, the generosity of the miracle. The generosity of the miracle. Before we even look at how this gift was used, it's worth noting that sometimes God brings gifts from the unlikeliest of sources. At some point, we've all probably experienced it where God uses someone to be a blessing that we would have never expected. Who came and dropped off food? Did you say that one more time? Because if you would have given me a list of individuals that would have possibly been able to do this or would have done this, I would have never thought of that person. We've all probably experienced something like that where God uses the unlikeliest of person to be a blessing to us. Elisha received this unexpected blessing from what appears to be a perfect stranger. And what does he do? He immediately thinks of how he can be a blessing to others. Remember, he's being affected by the famine as well. His tummy's probably grumbling just like everyone else. And this man drops off food. And he brings it to him. Put yourself in Elisha's shoes. You're hungry. Probably been a while since you've had a decent meal. Food is literally just dropped off at your doorstep. What are you going to do? Well, you know, maybe I'm going to eat some here and only tell them that like half of the portion was actually what arrived. And I'm going to give them the rest of it. Or maybe you're just going to keep it all to yourself. But Elisha's first response is to go and to be a blessing to others. His mind was stayed on the Lord and that is why he didn't hesitate to give the food to the others even at a time of famine when he's probably just as hungry as everyone else. This can be extremely hard because we'll often look at our own situation and think we don't have the means to part with even a small amount of what we have. And this is where our faith must come in. Jesus taught in Luke chapter 6 and verse 38. He said, Give and it shall be given unto you. Good measure, pressed down and shaken together and running over, shall men give into your bosom. For with the same measure that ye meet withal, it shall be measured to you again. The idea there is that if you are generous with what God has blessed you with, his blessings will flow upon you even greater. If you're generous with what he gives you, as in, you're going to see the needs of others and see where you can help out. God will open up the windows of heaven greater so that there will not be room enough for you to receive what he's going to give you. We're told in 2 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse number 8, along the same lines, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that ye, always having all sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. When you're generous with the resources that God has given you, you will find that the words of Proverbs 11.25 will be true in your life where it says, the liberal soul shall be made fat. Those who are giving generously, he says, I'm going to fill them up. I'm going to take care of them. Those that always have an eye to be a blessing to others, when I've blessed them, I'm going to pour a blessing upon them so great 
that they're going to be more than satisfied. The level of your generosity will greatly influence your usefulness for Christ. If you're not actively generous in the things that God has given you and in the manner in which God has equipped you, you're not serving the Lord as you should. The generosity of the miracle, number three. Number four, the opposition to the miracle. The opposition to the miracle. Look at verse number 43. So Elisha receives this blessing. He turns to his servant and says, Give unto the people that they may eat. In verse 43, And his servitor said, What? Should I set this before an hundred men? He said again, Give the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, They shall eat and shall leave thereof. The opposition to the miracle. The true servant of Christ should not expect others to understand their level of generosity to demonstrate the same faith, or, or even their ability to demonstrate the same faith in the hand of God to provide. You see, the, the frustrating part is when opposition comes from those who should know better. That's what's frustrating. Elisha's servitor, who's most likely Gehazi, he expresses unbelief that such a small amount of food would ever be enough to feed these hundred men that Elisha insists to go and to feed. Honestly, with what Gehazi knows up to this point, and I'm speculating that it's him, but it's a pretty good idea that it is him. And with what he knows up to this point, with everything that Elisha has done, remember, this is the ninth miracle, so there's been eight other miracles up to this point. With what Gehazi knows up to this point, it's not too surprising to hear his complaint. It just makes you wonder why he would continue to doubt the power and the ability of God knowing what God has already done. He should know better, but what we know of Gehazi, it's not too surprising. I fear that many of us as believers end up looking at the circumstances that we face in life more like a Gehazi than an Elisha. Allowing logic to cloud our vision from seeing the wonder-working power of God. It makes you wonder if Gehazi was thinking about himself and wanted to keep the food for himself, especially since they were all dealing with famine. Either way, the truth is that it takes more than just witnessing miracles to save a soul. And up to this point, it certainly doesn't appear that Gehazi was a true believer in God. The opposition to the miracle. And notice number five, the means of the miracle. The means of the miracle. Faith in God and in his word were the only means that were involved with this miracle. And notice again what it says there in verse 43. And a servitor said, what? Should I set this before a hundred men? He said again, give the people that they may eat. For thus saith the Lord, they shall eat and shall leave thereof. He says, for thus saith the Lord. Where, true, where there is true faith in God, it will not be hindered by the unbelief of others. Elisha never once stopped to consider whether Gehazi's concerns were legitimate. He didn't stop and examine the food and then look at the people and think, you know what? My mistake. What was I even thinking? You're right, there are way too many people and there's barely enough food for the two of us to share. Forget everything I just said. Don't tell anyone about this. Let's eat together. He doesn't consider the legitimacy of this at all. Elisha wasn't immune from famine. But even when he could have benefited from keeping the food for himself, he trusts that just as God has provided this food from some mysterious source, he can continue, God can continue to provide for the prophet as well, even if he gives this food all away. 
Elisha was able to do something here that many Christians failed to do. He was able to regard the giver greater than the gift. And think about it. There was a famine in the land. Food is scarce. Elisha is hungry. God sends his DoorDash delivery guy to drop food to the prophet who's hungry. And as thankful as Elisha is to receive it, he immediately gives it away. He gives it away. I'm sure he'd been praying for God's provisions during this time of, of difficulty, during this time of famine, and, and would have thoroughly enjoyed sitting down and enjoying this delicious meal. But he doesn't partake in any of it. He passes it right along to be a blessing unto others. He does this not because he didn't appreciate what God had done to be a blessing to him personally. He did this because he trusted that if God's hand could provide here, then God's hand could also provide for him personally. Often when God blesses us, we're quick to thank him for the blessing. But then focus all of our attention back to the blessing and end up dwelling on the blessing more than the hand and the one who has blessed us. Elisha wasn't concerned with giving away a food in a time of famine because he had full confidence in the capability and the power of God to keep on delivering. God, you're going to send me this mysterious man who I've never met from a place where we know is steeped in idolatry and he's going to bring me food? All you've shown me, God, this is what Elisha's perspective is. There is never a means in which you cannot deliver. If you're going to use this guy to bring it, I can't wait to see who the next delivery guy is who's going to bring me what I need. So we're going to pass this on to those that need it, and I'm going to keep trusting that you're going to continue to take care of your servant. What an incredible testimony there in the man as well as in Elisha. And notice finally, number six, the meaning of the miracle. The meaning of the miracle. Look at verse number 44. So he set it before them, and they did eat, and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. So remember what he said back in verse 43. He says, that they may eat, for thus saith the Lord. They shall eat and shall leave thereof. Remember who's the power and the source behind all of this? It's God. Yes, he's saying what God is going to do. But it's still a miracle nonetheless. And so when you get to verse number 44, it says, So they set it before them, they did it, they did eat and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. God was speaking through the man of God, the prophet Elijah, and God delivered on all of that. The servant of Christ who is generous to others will find that God is generous to him. The more we receive from God, the more we should seek to be a blessing to others. God has freely given here and he leaves leftovers. Leftovers. There wasn't supposed to be enough for more than one or two people to eat. A hundred people eat. And now there's leftovers. And I'm willing, I'm not a betting man, but I'm willing to bet that if there were 12 baskets of leftovers in John chapter 6, after Jesus fed over 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish, 12 baskets of leftovers, that there were probably, probably more leftovers here than what originally began. Either, either way, there are leftovers. So as Elisha takes this blessing, passes it on, and says, God, I'm going to trust that you're going to have a meal for me too. A hundred men eat from a meal that should have been only sufficient for maybe one, maybe two men, and all of a sudden there's leftovers. 
And God is probably looking at Elisha and says, how's that for you, Elisha? Leftovers. God freely gives and is freely received. God's grace abounds to those who are generous. A true servant of Christ has full confidence in the wonder-working power of God regardless of the circumstances. Even though we face opposition in our service for Christ, don't allow the unbelief of others to hinder your trust and your confidence in Christ. Even though others may think that we're crazy, and there's plenty of people that are thinking that Christians are crazy, that's a good thing. We should be looked upon as lunatics, as crazy people, as weirdos in the eyes of the world because we're trusting in this God who can deliver in the midst of the most uncertain and unfavorable circumstances. And praise the Lord for that because he's proven himself faithful on every page of Scripture. Be looked upon as a crazy person. Don't allow the unbelief of others to hinder your trust and confidence in God, even though people think we're crazy. Keep acting in accordance to God's word. God has never failed anyone who has completely trusted in him, but in fact will honor those that trust him, and he will reward our faithfulness. So he set up before them, and they did eat and left thereof according to the word of the Lord. God said he would do it, and God delivered on that promise. Would you bow with me in prayer this morning? Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for the reminders that we need in Scripture of who you are and how great your hand of provision is. Lord, forgive us for not always seeing just how capable you are and attaching limits to what you can do. Lord, forgive us for failing to act generously with the gift that you've given. May our eyes be more open to see the needs of those around us. May our ears, Lord, be intently listening for those who are crying out for help all around us. And Lord, where there is opportunity, I pray that you would give us the means to give and to be a blessing as you have freely given to us and we have freely received it. Lord, may we go and do likewise as you have led us to do. In Christ's name we pray, amen.